Greetings from Quail Lakes Baptist Church in Stockton, California. Thank you for your interest in our downloadable messages. Our more recent teachings, such as Pastor Mark's current sermon series, are always available on iTunes. However, for a more comprehensive offering of Quail's Bible-based teachings from Pastor Mark and others, we offer an extensive archive of downloadable sermon MP3s on our website, as well as information on our fellowship and our ministries. Please visit us online at www.qlbc.org. These messages are also available on CD or cassette. For more information, please call our church office at 209-951-7380. We trust you will be blessed and edified by what you are about to hear. Thank you for listening. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians, the ninth chapter, is where we are today. We're moving through the book of 2 Corinthians chapter by chapter, just seeking to discover all that the Apostle Paul writes to not only the Corinthian Christians, but to us as well under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Today's key concept is this, the harvest reflects the planting. The harvest reflects the planting. We call this the law of the harvest. And once again, as we did last week, what we're talking about really is living lives of generosity, giving. Now, you may be surprised that I'm talking two weeks in a row about living generous lives and giving financially. And if you're surprised by that and maybe a little bit bothered, I would suggest to you that your beef is with the Apostle Paul, not with me. Because Paul returns to the topic, the very same topic we we looked at in chapter 8, he returns to in chapter 9, and the reason for that is because he's uh, explaining in a fuller way what he's asking the Corinthian Christians to do. Remember what we noticed last week, and that is uh, Paul, during his missionary journeys, he's collecting an offering that's going to go back to the Jerusalem church where they are in need. And he's talking uh, about money, still talking about money, but in chapter 9, he moves the emphasis a little bit to what we receive as we give out of uh, generosity and living a generous life. But once again, talking about money, and the fact is that talking about money seems to bring the worst out in people, Uh, even pastors. I read a story about a rich man, and he was on his deathbed, just about to, you know, uh, leave this life, and he called into the room his doctor, his lawyer, and his pastor to his side. And he said, as he is near death, he said, gentlemen, I want you to understand, I don't believe in that saying that you can't take it with you. I am going to try. And so I'm giving each one of you an envelope, and in each of these envelopes, there's $100,000. And what I want you to do is this. After the funeral is over, I know my time is short, and when they're closing that casket lid, I want you to put this envelope inside the coffin. And they all agreed that they would do that. And the time came, the funeral happened, and the the, the casket lid was being closed, and each of them put it in the envelope. And as they left, first of all, the the doctor said, you know, I just need to confess something. I I feel bad about it, but I didn't put in the whole $100,000. He said, no, you know, we're raising money for that clinic for the poor, and I took $50,000 out, and I donated that to that clinic. 
And the lawyer heard that and he said, well, I got to confess, I too didn't put the whole $100,000 in. We have a legal fund for underprivileged people and I put $75,000 towards that legal fund. I only put $25,000 into the casket. And the pastor was shocked. He said, gentlemen, I'm ashamed of you. I wrote a check for the whole amount. Now, for some of you, it's going to take a little time. In about the middle of the message, you're going to go, ah, oh, check, got to get check. Well, last week, Paul called the Corinthian uh, Christians to live lives of generosity, and he labeled generosity a grace. And we notice that it's a grace that flows two ways. It flows towards the meeting of the need, whatever we're giving towards, and it also flows back to us. Uh, we are graciously grown in, in our faith as we give. Now, in chapter 9, he's expanding on that, that element of the grace flowing back to the giver. And what he shows us is, in fact, the saying is true, you can't outgive God. He shows us that that is true, and this is how he does it in the law of the harvest. Starting in verse 6, read along with me. He says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Those who sow sparingly will reap sparingly. Those who sow generously will reap generously. That is the law of the harvest. And primarily, Paul is talking about money here. People talk a lot about money. Go to any gathering, any party, and eventually you'll hear some talk about money. It might be in the form of the price of gas or the price of groceries or an investment strategy or something like that, but money and the need for money and how we spend money comes up in conversations all the time. Money is the number one cause of arguments among marriages, I'm told. It's the topic of self-help shows and books and series and tapes and infomercials. We're all concerned about money. And Paul has come to a point in his life where he too is concerned about money. But not so much money for himself. He's concerned about the offering he wants to take for the church in Jerusalem. And here's what has happened recently. About a year ago, from the writing of the, of, the, of the letter here, about a year prior, the Corinthian church has heard about the Jerusalem need, and they promised that they would give an offering towards that need. Now, Paul has taken that promise that the Corinthian church made, and he's used that as an example t telling other churches that they too should be generous. So the Corinthians kind of in their making the pledge where it was able to be a teaching tool for the Apostle Paul. Look in verse 2, he explains it. And he says, For I know your eagerness to help, and I have been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year you and Achaia were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action." In other words, I've been using your pledge to, to get others to participate. And now in this letter, he's 
tactfully but firmly telling them, you have to be faithful to your pledge. You need to do what you said you would do. Very, very, very soon, Paul will visit Corinth. He's sending this letter ahead so that they can get organized and they can follow through. And the truth is that they are able to help. The Corinthian church was thriving at this time financially, or at least the city was. It was a center of commerce. It was a center of trade. These are not impoverished people as they are in the north. And they are able to help. But the reality is, Paul says, giving is for all. Just not, not just for the wealthy, but all of us can do something, and that's the point. Do something. And in the midst of this teaching, Paul shares that eternal principle, the harvest reflects the planting. The story is told of potato farmers. And at the end of the harvest, they brought in the potatoes, and they noticed that some of those potatoes were large and some were puny. And the, and the farmers thought to themselves, you know, you know, we want to make sure we have enough to eat. And so they decided to keep the large potatoes for food and to use the puny potatoes for seeds. And they, used, and they did that pattern year after year after year as the harvest was brought in. And lo and behold, the entire crop grew smaller and smaller and smaller because the harvest reflects the planting. You can't keep the best and use the worst as seed for the future and think you're going to have a quality harvest. And this principle is true not only in farming, not only in finance, it's true in all of life. I was at the gas station not too long ago, and I was pumping gas in my car. It was early in the morning, and um, a woman came out of the shop. And as she came to the, uh, evidently she had just paid her bill, she came to the shop, she opened up the door to get in, and I didn't notice it, but there was a little girl in that car. And in the time it took for her to open that door, get in the seat, and drive away, all of a sudden, this woman started cussing and swearing at this child in such a demeaning and vulgar way, and then she drove, drove away. And I, I was just stood there, shocked. But this came to my mind. What is being planted in that little girl? What's the harvest that's going to come in the life of that little girl? Because the harvest always reflects the planting. You may probably have never heard of Sir Robert Watson Watt, but he's proof that our actions have consequences. He is the inventor of the radar. And one day, he was caught speeding by a police radar. And when he was caught speeding, he wrote a poem about himself. And the poem went like this. Pity Sir Robert Watson Watt, strange target of his radar plot. And with others that I could mention, he's a victim of his own invention. We are victims of our own invention in terms of the consequences that come from our actions. You could say what goes around comes around. We reap what we sow, but the harvest reflects the planting, and it's true in parenting. It's true in relationships. It's true in business. It's true in ministry. It's true in giving. If we think that we can do the work of the gospel without being generous or without serving graciously, we will not reap an abundant harvest for the Lord. The harvest reflects the planting. Proverbs 11 says this, One man gives freely yet gains more. Another withholds unduly but comes to poverty. A generous man will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. 
But in our flesh, that's not the way we want it. In our flesh, we want easy money. We want simple success. We want abundant harvest that far outshine our investment. But the message is, it really doesn't work that way. The principle of sowing and reaping, it's prominent in Scripture, and it is obvious in life. And it is so out there, so obvious that we wonder, how is it that Satan can convince us that we are the exceptions when, in fact, there are no exceptions? An otherwise smart man who spends his middle years ignoring his growing family, concentrating on his business, is shocked to find out that there's a great distance between himself and his children. The harvest reflects the planting. A self-centered woman who spends all her time talking about herself, talking about her accomplishment, her kids, her ideas, is shocked when her friends don't call her. Don't be shocked. The young husband who thinks it's his right to go out with the boys on the weekend and as if he was still a teenager and leave his wife at home is shocked to find out his wife resents it. Don't be shocked. The student who cuts classes and skips exams and never cracks a book is shocked when there's an F on the report card. <laughs> Don't be shocked. The harvest reflects the planting. This law is always enforced. And there's two aspects to the law, the aspect of increase and interval. This is what I mean, increase. No farmer would go out on the field with a bag of seeds and plant those seeds hoping to only harvest another bag of seeds. He expects increase. Part of the law of the harvest is there's increase, and it's both negative and positive. Hosea puts it this way, they sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. That's increase. That's the harvest, but it's a negative increase. But Jesus promises a positive. In Luke chapter 6, he says, Give and it will be given to you a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. That's increase. That's part of the harvest law. And there's always interval. In other words, there's a time in between the planting and the harvest. When we sow a seed, it takes time for that seed to grow to maturity. And it's true in every aspect of life. It's true in our dealings with other people. It's true in our giving, all these kinds of things. You have to wait to see what the results will be. And we don't know exactly when the harvest will come, when the consequences will hit. We don't know that, but it will come. The season will end. There's an interval, but then there is a harvest. And Paul takes time to make sure the Corinthian church understands this so they could be the kind of givers that God wants them to be. And I think what's happening is Paul's imagining as he's explaining all this that there's somebody in Corinth who's saying to themselves, you know, I, I, I've not been doing that. I've not been obeying God in regards to this. I've not been generous with my finance to support the things of the Lord. What should I do? How should I... How should I make up for that? And the Apostle Paul in verse 7 then goes on to explain, this is what the kind, of, uh, the kind of giver that God loves. This is what it looks like. Look at verse 7. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, there's some components there to, that to our giving that tells us this is what God loves to see. Number one, He loves to see giving that is decided on. Some of your Bibles might say purposed, purposed in His heart in verse 7. It means this is a choice. God wants us to choose 
to be generous in our life. That word that the NIV translates decided, that some of your Bibles say purposed. Interestingly enough, it is the only time in all the New Testament that that Greek word shows up. It's because it's a very specific word. It's a word that has a picture in mind. It's the picture of a person who has made a plan, a person who's planned it out in advance and is acting on the plan. It's not impulsive. It's not a pull on your emotions. It's not all of a sudden that kind of thing. It's rather, I have thought this through. I know what I'm doing, and I'm deciding to be generous. And God loves it when we give without regret, without grudging, without reluctance, but rather cheerfully giving. When we give regretfully, this is what it looks like. We give with our heart attached to the things that we're not going to be able to afford because of the gift. The things that we thought we were maybe going to buy for ourselves, but now I can't, you know? So you give your gift and, oh, there goes my new iPhone. You give your gift, there goes my new big screen TV. There goes my trip that I was going to take. That's, that's the regretful, reluctant giver. If only I hadn't given that money to God, I'd tell you what, I'd be, you know, I'd be in Kabul right now, but nope, nope. But a regretful giver, you see, gives, sees God as a taker. God drains my resources. God is always looking for a handout. But when you see God as the ultimate giver, as you see God as the source of all of your blessings and, and really the owner of all that we have, when you see Him as the fountain of hope for all, everything changes. And that person loves to give because what we see is the result of the giving. I see the blessing that this is going to bring. I see the people that the gospel is going to touch. I see the way that we're able to impact the world for good because of my giving. And, when, and I notice all the good that's happening. And that's a cheerful giver. That's the difference. The difference is how you see God. Do you see God as a taker or do you see God as a giver? And he's, if he's a giver, you want to be a part of that. And God loves it when we give without arm twisting, not under compulsion. Everybody loses when we do things under compulsion. God, in his mind eye, he sees this desired sense of gladness that we can do something to bless others. And so when I do it, I'm cheerful about doing it. Cheerful giver. That, in, that Greek word that we translate cheerful has come into the English language. So I'll tell it to you. It's, it's hilarion. You know it as hilarious. God loves a hilarious giver. A sense of, I mean, a joyful ecstasy about what's God going to do with this now? That's going to be great. I can't wait to see it. A reckless pleasure in being able to be a part of what God's doing. We relish the opportunity for that. That's the kind of giver that God loves. And that's the kind of giver for whom there is promised a return, a blessing. So what does he mean by the blessing? The reality is, I believe God does provide materially for those who are generous. Not giving as a get-rich-quick scheme. It's not a, a scheme at all. I reject the premise of the health and wealth teachers that faith somehow should be a profit plan. But let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater here. The truth is God responds to generosity with generosity. I've seen it over and over again. As we give financially, God provides so that there is no lack. We have what we need. And the promise is right here in this passage. Look at verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. 
Look at verse 11. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion, and through uh, us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. There's a harvest there. The promise is you'll be able to meet your needs and be the kind of people that God has called you to be. The promise is as you are generous, God meets your needs so that you can continue to be generous. That's the way that He works. But there's further blessings as well. Part of the blessing is what I call the blessing of becoming. Part of the harvest that I reap if I am a generous person is the kind of person that I grow into and I become. There are no shortcuts, you see, to good character. You can probably think back to your high school days or junior high and remember the student who cheated, cheated their way to get the grades, cheated their way to pass the tests, and they looked good on paper. The report cards came out, and they had decent grades, and maybe you thought to yourself, even as a student, what kind of dope am I to work so hard to do my homework, to, to learn my lessons, to take the tests, when this guy's getting good grades, he's cheating, he's faking his way through the whole process. And here's where you need to remember that going to school is not about grades. Going to school is about getting an education. It's about mastering the subjects. And when you, when you do it that way, you become something important, an educated person. It's the same way with generosity. As we are generous, we begin to change. We become more gracious, more positive, more hopeful, more faith-filled. Our lives change for the better, but there's no shortcut. We have to do the work of generosity. But there's also the blessing of what happens in terms of praise to God. Look at verse 12. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but it is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. See, the result of all this is that needs will be met, and as the needs are met, God will be praised and your generosity will be noticed. It'll be all part of the worship for our God. I'll put it this way. Since generosity is an act of faith, it inspires faith. Since generosity is an act of worship, it inspires worship. Since generosity is an act of hope, it inspires hope. Since generosity is an act of love, it inspires love. Those are the outward effects, even as it's making me into a more thankful person. It helps me get my eyes off of myself, and I become a part of God's big picture program. All of this, the harvest reflects the planting. It's the law of the harvest. So, What's the rest of the story? What I mean is, how did this go? What was the result? Did Paul indeed collect an offering from Corinth that helped the Jerusalem church? Were they really blessed by these people? Were they convinced, you know, in Corinth? Well, in order to answer that story, you have to go to Romans chapter 15. And when Romans 15 is being written, Paul is on his way to Jerusalem and is on his way to do what he said he would do. And it says this, Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the saints there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Now, here's what you need to know. Macedonia is northern Greece. They made the collection. Achaia is southern Greece, Corinth being the main city. 
They made the collection. Both of these areas of the world contributed, and Paul took that offering to Jerusalem and blessed them there. They were part of the blessed rescue of the people of Jerusalem. And because of their gifts, we know the results. God was pleased and God was praised. And as we are generous, God will be pleased. God will be praised. And you will be blessed. That's the law of the harvest. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for practical guidance from your word. We thank you, Lord, that it is indeed true. We cannot outgive you. We pray that we would be generous in many aspects of life. While this primarily has to do with finance, it also has to do with all kinds of ways that we could choose selfishness if we would do so. But help us not to. Help us to see others. Help us to care. Help us to live outwardly focused. And as we do that, Lord, do the work in us that you long to do. Form in us the kind of person you want us to be. And we will give you the glory for that. In Jesus' name, amen. The team is back to lead us in a closing song. Let's stand together as we sing.
After every service, I invite you to know that we have prayer counselors next to the organ by the prayer table. They will wait to pray with you, no matter what your need is. Maybe there's something going on in your life for which you need prayer, a decision that you're facing, or, or maybe it's this issue, being generous. No matter what it is, they will take your concern to the Lord, and you can slip forward and have confidence in that. But first, let's all pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your amazing love. It is the, because of your love that we are here. We, are, we have hope that we are saved and we know for sure that we are forgiven. Because of your love, you sacrifice for us. And you ask us, Lord, in this world to be different, where everybody is just trying to gain and get. Help us, Lord, to be givers, givers of our time and givers of our love. And we pray as we do that, that we represent you well. So enable us this week, we pray. For we ask all of that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for coming today.